0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We'll continue our series through this letter from Paul. I'd like to begin our time together by reading our text for this morning, Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 8 in our time in the Word together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Fathers, we approach your word this morning. We thank you for revealing your glory to us through your word and through your Son. We thank you for your grace. For your love, for the precious truth of the gospel, we ask that as we gaze into your word this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, give us soft hearts to receive all that you would speak to us. God, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes in us and through us, all for the glory of Christ, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this letter to the Colossians, was a man who was radically devoted to one thing. One thing. And that was the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is the good news, the message of Christ's death and resurrection for sinners. By preaching this good news, Paul was seeking to lay a foundation for the church. This was his apostolic calling, as we talked about last week. This is what he lived for. And it would be ultimately what he one day Would die for. Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, introducing himself, he said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel is good news, it's good news that speaks to our deepest need as sinners who are separated from God because of our rebellion. It's the good news that through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has triumphed over sin, triumphed over death, triumphed over Satan, our enemy, and that Jesus now shares this victory, this salvation, this life with all who believe in him. It's not a message of self-help. It's not a, a call to try harder and do better. The gospel is a message that testifies to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ and his work on the cross. Therefore, the gospel was of first importance for Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he writes to those believers, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with The scriptures. Paul says, This is what I received. This is the gospel that you are believing in. This is how we come to experience salvation. It's through Christ. This powerful message was the central truth around which Paul's entire life revolved. And it's the truth upon which his entire ministry was built. He told the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. You say it if you know it. And Him crucified. That's the gospel. The word for gospel, euangelion, is found 97 times in the New Testament. I think I shared this with you all a couple years ago. I I did a, a brief study just looking through the New Testament to see every place in which this word gospel appears and to see what kinds of verbal ideas, what kinds of actions are always connected to the gospel. According to the New Testament, the gospel is to be preached, it is to be proclaimed, It is to be presented, it is to be declared, delivered, shared, believed, obeyed. The gospel is to be seen, confessed, received. We are called to defend the gospel, to confirm the gospel, to advance the gospel. The gospel is to be sacrificed for. The gospel is to be stewarded. The gospel is to be labored for. It is to be hoped in. It's to be preserved. It's so not to be turned away from, distorted, or forgotten. We are called to never be ashamed of the gospel, but to have confidence in the gospel. We are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, and if necessary, suffer for the sake of the gospel. I don't have time to take you to all the verses where I found those things, but suffice it to say, it's no surprise that Paul would, would write to the Corinthians that the gospel is of first importance. So it's no surprise to us that when Paul hears about this church in Colossae, and he hears, as we read in verses 3 through 8, about their reception of the gospel, it's no surprise that his first instinct is one of gratitude. He is thankful that the gospel has been received by these people. He rejoices because it's been preached to them, received by them, and is now bearing fruit among them. As we examine Paul's expression of gratitude this morning in our text, I want to consider three truths that emerge as Paul reflects on the impact of the gospel, specifically among these people in Colossae. The first truth that emerges is this, it's that the impact of the gospel reveals the grace of God at work. It reveals the grace of God at work when the gospel takes root among people we see this in verses 3 through 5 Paul writes we always thank God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven he says of this you've heard before in the word of truth the gospel after his initial greeting in verses 1 through 2 Paul begins, begins his letter to them with an affectionate expression of gratitude. He's going to address some problems here in a minute, but he's not going to jump on that just yet. Before he instructs them, before he gives some gracious and much-needed correction, Paul knows that first and foremost, there's a lot to be thankful for. There's a lot to be thankful for when he hears about this church and everything that's happening there. Gratitude will be a frequent topic for Paul in this letter. He'll talk about it in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 4, verses 2 and 9. But before he instructs them to be thankful, he really sets a good example for them. He himself has gratitude for what is going on in Colossae. But notice specifically that he is grateful to God. He's not thanking them. Although he's expressing gratitude, he's not saying thank you, believers in Colossae. He's saying thank you to God. He has heard from Epaphras about this amazing transformation that's taking place in these people, these people who have embraced the gospel. And Paul knows, get this, this is important, Paul knows that God is the one responsible ultimately for their new spiritual life. The things that Paul is so excited to see in them, he knows that that's God's doing. That is God's work. So notice the emphasis. We can just kind of skim through the rest of this letter and see the, the constant emphasis that Paul places on God's work in salvation. Notice in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul will tell them that it is God who has qualified them. It is God who has made them righteous. That's what it means to be qualified, to belong to the kingdom of God. You can be unqualified because of your sin. The only way to be made qualified is through forgiveness and then The imputation of righteousness, God giving us the righteousness of Christ, declaring us to be not guilty. That that is God's work. He qualifies us. And verse 13 says that he delivers us. He rescues us through Christ from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. Verse 14, God redeems us. We have forgiveness through the blood of Christ. He's paid our debt, purchased our freedom through his blood. In verse 22 of chapter 1, we see that God has reconciled us to himself through the cross of Christ, taken those who are far off, those who are his enemies, and dealt with the problem that kept us at enmity with God. We see in chapter 2, verse 13, that God made them alive. At that moment of conversion, when someone goes from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, that's a divine miracle. God does that in a person's heart. We see even in chapter 3, verse 12, that these people have been chosen by God. At every point, Paul knows that the credit for what is happening in their hearts, the person that needs to be thanked, is God. Salvation is totally and completely God's gracious work. It is all of grace. Salvation is a gift of God, and Paul is deeply grateful for this. He knows that God is at work in them, and he knows that God is at work at them, because because of what has been produced in them through the preaching of the gospel. What has God produced in them? What is it that Paul has heard about, that Epaphras has seen evidence of, that causes Paul to be so thankful? We see it in verse 4. He says he thanks God because he heard, verse 4, about their faith and of their love because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. These three terms are frequently found together in the New Testament. We find them in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 5. And Paul first of all identifies their faith in Christ in verse 4. Now, notice that he doesn't just say your faith, like generic faith. There's a lot of people who have faith. Some of you had faith that the Chiefs were going to win yesterday. Some of you have watched too many playoff games and you know that the Colts usually beat us at home. But you can have faith in general. People say you just got to have faith or that's what faith can do. But Paul points out that their faith was not just faith in general. It was specifically faith in Christ. He was the object of their faith. Faith in Christ is more than assenting to facts about Christ. Faith in Christ means fully depending on the work of Christ resting completely in the sufficiency of his death and the power of his resurrection to save them. They were trusting in Christ. Their trust is anchored in him. Paul will later refer to their faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead in chapter two, verse 12. Paul knows that these people have genuine, vibrant, solid faith because it's faith in Christ. Christ is the one who always keeps his promises, who has power to save, who is worthy of our faith. And their faith in Christ is something that Paul was deeply thankful for. It was a sign that God was accomplishing in them his plan, his plan from eternity past to save sinners. This has been God's plan for his glory since the very beginning. Jesus himself went to the cross because of the glorious joy of redeeming sinners for himself. Jesus didn't die for no reason. He died for a purpose, to save all those who would believe. And Paul's excited that this is happening. What Jesus died for is happening. It's taking place. The angels in heaven rejoice when one soul is saved. And Paul is rejoicing along with them because of this amazing work of salvation that's taken place in these people. And Paul is excited about their faith also, not just because it's what God wants to do in the world, because the angels in heaven rejoice, but Paul's excited about their faith because this is what he labored for. I mean, keep in mind, this is what Paul breathed in and out for every day, what he spent himself for. His life was dedicated to seeing sinners saved through faith in Christ. Their faith was precious to him. In chapter 2, Verse five, Paul will tell them later, though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul says, your faith is precious to me. I rejoice in this. Paul gave thanks to God for their faith, knowing that even faith itself is ultimately a gift from God. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel and drawn them to Christ. Paul will tell the Corinthians that you know one plants and another waters, but God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who harvests. And Paul praises God for the harvest that is taking place among them. And he sees the evidence of this in their faith. But it's not just their faith in Christ. He he refers secondly to their love, their love for all the saints in verse 4. You see, Paul just, he's not just excited about this vertical virtue, faith in Christ. He's also excited because of this horizontal virtue, love for one another, love for all the saints. Their faith in Christ was accompanied by genuine love. Love is really evidence. It's evidence of saving faith. Those who claim to believe in Christ, those who profess to have this faith but have no love for others... Such people are hypocrites. The scripture says that their faith is counterfeit. As those who have received the love of God through faith, we are compelled to love one another. Jesus said in John chapter 13 verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, Jesus says, by your love for one another, will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's really one of the litmus tests, that someone is truly born again, that they are an authentic Christian, not a hypocrite who knows the right words to say, but someone whose heart has been radically changed by God through the work of Christ, so that they're starting to become more like the one that they believe in. Paul's thankful to hear of their love, that it's genuine, that it's alive. And notice the object of their love. They're not selective in who they love. They're not discriminating, loving some and not others. He rejoices in their love for all the saints. These were the kind of people that said, Listen, if God is your father, then you are my brother, you are my sister, and we're part of the same family. You might have more money or less money than me. You might have more education or less education than me. You might be single, you might have a big family. You might have a different color skin than me and be from a different part of town than me. But if your faith is in Christ, then we're family. And I love you. Love for all the saints. As Paul will remind them later, among those who believe, Christ is all and in all. Chapter three, verse 11. So there's no more Jew and Gentile. There's no more slave and free. All are equal and united in Christ. And these people, trusted in Christ, They loved Christ, and because of that, they loved everyone that their Savior loved. They had love for all the saints. Such love is evidence that God is at work. The world has no answers to to solve the enmity between people, people of different classes, people of different races, people with different personalities. Only the gospel can produce love and harmony and unity like this. It means that As Paul looked at them, he knew that their love meant that they had truly embraced the good news about Jesus and were becoming more and more like him, like the one who has shown us the love of the Father. So Paul rejoices because of their faith, because of their love. But in verse 5, he refers thirdly to the hope laid up for you in heaven. He says, we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, verse 4, and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven faith, hope, and love. Many times in other passages are like three parallel ideas. People have faith, people have love, and then people have this feeling of hope, hopefulness, expectation, confidence that God is going to do what he promised. But here in this text, faith, hope, and love are not necessarily three parallel ideas. Rather, hope is described as the source of of their faith and of their love. It's what their faith was grounded in. It's what produced their love. They have faith and love because of, Paul says, the hope laid up in heaven for them. So sometimes this word hope does refer to an inner attitude that we have, that feeling of expectancy. But here, this hope that Paul refers to is outside of them. He doesn't say, and because of the hope that you have in your hearts. He says, no, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, there is hope outside of them. This hope is not a subjective feeling. It is an objective reality, something that exists, something that is in store for them in the future. What is this hope that is laid up for them? I think Paul refers to it later in chapter 3, verse 4. It's resurrection. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That was their hope. That's what they look forward to. In chapter three, verse 24, along with resurrection comes reward. Paul says, from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. There is an eternal inheritance that is coming for all who are united with Christ through faith. And what that means is that we can lose anything and everything in this life. Anything and everything in this life. And we can be confident that because of Christ we have an eternal inheritance that will put to shame anything that could be gained or lost in this world. This future reward, the promise of resurrection and an eternal inheritance is ours because of our union with Christ. In Colossians 1:27, Paul will refer to Christ in you the hope of glory. How can they have this confident expectation that they will one day be raised with Christ? How can they have this confident hope that one day they will receive an inheritance? It's because Christ was in them. He dwells in their hearts through faith. This was the hope of glory. And Paul says, this is what your faith is grounded in. This is what is energizing your love. It's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, there's some people who will say, that if all your hope is in the world to come, if you're focused on eternity, first and foremost, that you're going to be a waste of space here in this life. That you'll just kind of clock out and check out because you know that, well, the good stuff's coming one day, so I'm just going to go through the motions here. Maybe they'll say, if you're so heavenly-minded, you'll be of no earthly good. Have you guys heard that before? Maybe thought through that. Does that make sense? Is that true? One commentator describe this mentality as it'll be all pie in the sky by and by. we're We're just looking to heaven and not worried about anything in this life. But I think Paul's commendation of the Colossians shows us that the opposite is actually true. Such hope laid up for us in heaven calls for faith that produces good works. Good works like love for all the saints. If someone checks out in this life, They don't love other people. They're not engaged in good works. They're not actively serving for the good and benefit of others. They have no care for the needs around them. It shows that they really don't have a real understanding of the gospel. That's not what Paul is calling us to. He says the hope hope laid up for them actually produces good works like love. I think that actually finding your hope in this world alone is a much greater danger for us. It's a much greater danger for us than anchoring our hopes firmly and securely in the age to come. If your hope in this world is for a a better kind of family, maybe marriage or children or maybe healing and restoration taking place in your family, if your hope is fully set on better health, or getting to that next level financially where you can escape some of the pressures you have right now. If your hope in this life is to have success in your career, if your hope in this life is to be accepted by your peers, you fill in the blank. If your hope is something in this world, if it's in anything else other than that which has been purchased for us through the blood of Christ, then you're going to be let down and you're going to wind up empty. Perhaps... In part because God never promises us any of those things, or because you'll actually get those things that you want and find out that it still leaves you empty. You'll end up depressed and cynical because you will have wasted your life trying to secure those things only to find that they do not last. They do not last. They may be good things even, but they cannot bear the weight of your worship. They'll slip through your fingers in the end. The hope that we are called to have as those who believe in the gospel is a hope that is stored up for us in heaven. That's what we live for. That's what we wait for. That's what we invest in. And that is what gives us a strong faith and energizes love and service in this life. For the Colossians, this hope laid up in heaven for them had done exactly that. And Paul gave thanks for the impact of the gospel in Colossae because it revealed God's gracious work in them. How do you explain a people who believe like this and who love like this? The only explanation is that God was at work. It was evidence of his grace. The impact of the gospel in them, the impact of the gospel among you, shows a gracious God at work. But secondly, the impact of the gospel also reveals the powerful nature of the message. It reveals the powerful nature of the message itself. Verse 5, he writes about this change that's taken place in them because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, and now he focuses in on that hope laid up for them in heaven. He says, of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. He says, they've heard about this hope before. How did they hear about this hope? When did they hear this, about this hope? He says, well, when Epaphras came and preached the good news of the gospel to you. Paul refers to the gospel here as the word of truth. We see similar language in Ephesians and James. And in some of Paul's letters to his ministry partners, he refers to this gospel as a trustworthy saying. And in a day and age where everyone has their truth, in a day and age when truth is often said to be relative it's important for us to acknowledge that the gospel is not a truth. It is not Paul's truth. It is the truth. The word of truth. It is fundamentally true. It's an objective reality that doesn't need anyone's approval to be true. Even if everyone rejects it, it is still true. And therefore, it is powerful. Truth has power. And Paul points out that this gospel, this word of truth, is spreading throughout the world. He says, verse 6, that the gospel which has come to you through the preaching of Epaphras, he points out, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This gospel, Paul says, is powerful it is true and it is powerful and its power is seen in how it spreads throughout the whole world the gospel has universal impact because it speaks to a universal problem the gospel isn't just for jews it's not just the people of israel that were being saved it was spreading out and overflowing even to the gentiles the people to whom paul and his partners ministered the gospel is not just for middle class it's not just for the wealthy it's not just for the poor The gospel is for metropolitan cities. The the gospel is for rural farmland communities. The gospel is for first world countries and third world societies. The gospel is for the strong. The gospel is for the weak. The gospel is for the highly educated. The gospel is for the simple. The gospel is for people who are religious. And the gospel is for people who are secular. Because all of us are broken by sin. All of us, no matter where we're from, no matter who we are, are doomed to face the judgment of a holy God because we've rebelled against him. But all of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what our past is, all of us are invited to come to the cross and receive salvation through Christ, by grace, through faith. And this gospel, Paul says, has been spreading and advancing ever since Jesus commissioned his disciples to go. Remember, he told the the disciples at the end of, of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of all the nations. How do they do that? It's through the preaching of the gospel. And despite opposition to that message, despite persecution that came against Christ, against his disciples, and against every generation of believers since, Despite all of that, there are believers today in every corner of the globe. It's an amazing thing to think about, that in China, in North Korea, in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, in Mobile, Alabama, in Lawrence, Kansas, Mexico City, Toronto, it doesn't matter where you are, you can go around the world and find people who believe in this gospel. Jesus declared in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus was right. He's always right. God's plan to redeem a people for himself, to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that plan is always advancing. How? Because there's power in this message. There is power in the gospel itself. Paul told the Romans in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. There are some who push this message away, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This message of the gospel is powerful. And that power is seen in how it spreads throughout the world. And not only is the gospel advancing throughout the world, but Paul also rejoices that the gospel has an ongoing impact on them. They are growing. He says that they are bearing fruit, or rather that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing among them in verse 6. You see, the initial impact that this word of truth had upon them is continuing to reverberate, reverberating in their hearts, reverberating throughout their lives. Their ongoing faith, their ongoing love, their good works and steadfastness is evidence of the ongoing power of the gospel in them. You don't graduate past the gospel. As you hold to it, as you trust in it, as you depend on it, it grows in you and empowers you. And it keeps changing you. And Paul could see that in their lives as he heard the report from Epaphras. There is power in the gospel as it spreads throughout the world. And there's power in the gospel as it continues to shape and change who we are and produce fruit in us. Now, there were some in Colossae who did not believe in the power of the gospel. I think that's why Paul wants to point this out right up front. There were some who did not believe that the gospel was enough because they thought you needed to add something else in, like rituals or maybe attaining to some higher spiritual knowledge that was in addition to the simple truth of the gospel. Paul's going to have to address that later. And you know what? There's some today. There's people today who doubt the power and the sufficiency of the pure, simple gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't think that it's really enough to change lives. Some people think we need to dress the gospel up. We need to somehow make church more entertaining in order to reach people and convince them to come and hear the gospel. Other people think that the gospel is too simple. We need deeper philosophical arguments and we need to somehow attain intellectual respectability in order to really make progress in the world. If we really want to see the gospel advance, we've got to do that. Some people think that the gospel is too offensive to tell people about the reality of hell, to tell people that they are totally depraved and that they deserve God's righteous wrath and judgment because of their gross immorality, their sin against him, and that all people without exception are like this, that's offensive. Some people think we shouldn't lead with truths like hell or God's holiness or the complete sinfulness of man if we want to draw people to Christ. Still other people will treat the gospel as a secondary issue. Instead of finding priority and purpose in the gospel, some people argue that we find our priority and purpose in social activism, thinking that our efforts in this world outside of the gospel can somehow bring the change that the world needs, somehow bring change that gospel preaching cannot. But we are called to never compromise, the word of truth. If we dilute the gospel, or if we neglect the gospel, we will not experience the power and potency that 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 we that we can observe there at the church in Colossae, the the powerful impact that Paul here is thanking God for. If if we dilute the gospel or neglect it, we won't see the gospel spread. We won't see lives changed. J.C. Ryle, the Puritan pastor, once wrote that the cross is never made more acceptable by sawing off its corners or by polishing, varnishing, or adorning it. No, the gospel itself is powerful. It's powerful. We need to be fully honest, therefore, and bold with the truth of the gospel. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, later on, Paul will ask them to pray for him. He will say, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul knew the one thing that mattered is that the pure truth of the gospel gets out and that we make it clear, that we make it clear. The gospel must be made clear because the power is in the message itself. Paul knew the power wasn't in him and he knows that the power isn't in you or me. It's not in this church. The power is in the message. The power comes through the spirit of God as the word of God about the son of God is proclaimed. There is power in the message of the gospel. This is evident to Paul as he observes both its global spread and the ongoing personal impact in them. And he is thankful Thankful for this. But third, the third thing that the impact of the gospel reveals. It doesn't just reveal the grace of God at work. It not only reveals the, the power of the message itself, but third, the impact of the gospel reveals the necessity of faithful ministry. It reveals the necessity of faithful gospel ministry. Verse 6, he says that the gospel has come to them, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Verse 7 says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. They didn't get this gospel by osmosis. They didn't just kind of go through life and all of a sudden just have this idea one day that, you know what? I think God is holy and I'm a sinner. And unless Christ pays my debt on the cross and rises again, I can never be saved. I should repent of my sin and trust in him. They didn't just get there on their own. No, someone came and told them. A real person with a name, with a life, with a family. And his name was Epaphras. And he preached the gospel to them. Imagine for a moment if Epaphras had not come to them Imagine for a moment if Epaphras had not preached the gospel to them. There would be no faith in Christ. There would be no love for all the saints. There would be no saints. There would be no fruit produced in them. They would still be lost. They would still be in spiritual bondage. They would still be separated from God. This logic is kind of fleshed out for us in Romans chapter 10. Paul writes there that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What an amazing promise. What good news. But Paul asked the question then, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Salvation is God's work alone, yes, we affirm that. But God uses human means. He uses people like Epaphras, people like Paul, people like Glenn Holmes, people like Nancy Moneymaker, people like J.D. Summers. He uses people as the means by which his gospel goes forth. He uses messengers to speak his truth. He uses our obedience and opening our mouths. He uses our prayers and praying for people to be saved. He uses our witness and our testimony and our example and our lives. This is essential to the spread of the gospel. So Paul's not just rejoicing in God's work in these people, he's also rejoicing in the faithfulness of this brother, Epaphras. And I love here how there's no jealousy in Paul. There's no attitude of competition like, Man, Epaphras preached the gospel and all these people got saved and this church is strong and it's doing so well. Man, I, 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 wish, I wish I had been involved in that. You know, it's like the, the basketball player who says, I need to take more shots. I need more points in the stat book because I've got to accomplish certain things. No, there's none of that in Paul's heart. From his perspective, a win for Epaphras is a win for him because they are both sold out for Christ. It's amazing, some of us are studying through the book of Philippians in our small groups. We'll see this in Philippians, that Paul can even rejoice when Christ is preached by people that don't like him, people that are trying to make his life harder, people that are trying to bring suffering into his life, preaching the gospel out of jealousy. Paul says, you know what, I'm just happy that Christ is being preached. Paul was willing to suffer, willing for other people to get the credit because he simply wanted the gospel to go forth and he wanted people to be saved. Robert Murray McShane, a young minister a couple hundred years ago, wrote that a man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake, until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. There's too many pastors out there today trying to build their own career. There's too many ministries that are so focused on self-promotion that Christ has become a means to their end of building their thing, rather than them realizing they exist to be a means to build Christ's thing, Christ's church, his kingdom. That has to be something that this church keeps at the very DNA of who we are as a ministry. This is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about whatever name is on you know, the flyers for our church. This is about Christ. We want people to know Christ and to be drawn to Christ, not to us, not to any of our personalities. And that's one of the reasons we spend time every Sunday praying for the advance of the gospel outside the ministry of this church, praying for the advance of the gospel in Mexico and in Brazil and in Olathe. And as Glenn prayed this morning, praying for the advance of the gospel here in Lawrence through other ministries, other churches. We want Christ to be made much of. We want Christ to be known. And we rejoice in that even if we don't get the credit, even if we're not part of it because it's not about us. This was the heart of Paul. He rejoiced in the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of Epaphras. But lest we think that Epaphras just showed up and maybe rented a Colosseum or something and then presented the gospel once for all these people and then went home and said, yeah, Paul, a bunch of people got saved. My work there is done. I want you to look at how Paul describes the gospel ministry of Epaphras in verse seven. He says, you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant. He calls him, first of all, a servant. I think that's instructive for us. Gospel ministry, again, is not self-promotion. It's humble service. Paul often describes himself as a slave of Christ, a bond servant, doulos, one who is not there to advance his own agenda, but one who is fully submitted to the will of his master. Epaphras was a servant servant. Submitted to God, serving him by preaching to these people. That's what gospel ministry is like. Not only is Epaphras, does he describe him as our beloved fellow servant, he says also, secondly, that he is faithful. He's a faithful minister. Gospel ministry, gospel ministry is long term. It's long term. Soul care is a labor of love that takes time. The initial acceptance of the gospel must be followed up by discipleship and shepherding and and, and continual preaching of the gospel. And Paul knows that Epaphras didn't just show up, shoot his one gospel bullet, and then go home. No, he was a faithful minister of the gospel. And he says, thirdly, that, that he ministers faithfully on your behalf. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Gospel ministry is not just service. It doesn't just require faithfulness, but it's also sacrificial. Epaphras isn't there for himself. He's there for their sake. He ministers the gospel on their behalf. He's prioritizing their spiritual needs, even at great personal cost to himself. That's what faithful gospel ministry looks like. In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul will say more about Epaphras' ministry. He says, Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Look at this. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. He was a faithful servant on their behalf. Long-term, consistent, regular labor through prayer and through preaching and through, I'm sure, counseling and discipleship and and conflict resolution and, and guidance and dealing with errors and strengthening the weak, all of that together. He worked hard for them. He struggled on their behalf. Paul knows that Epaphras was more than just a preacher. And because Paul knew what it cost to have a faithful ministry, he was thankful, he was thankful for that, and he knew that cost because of his own life. In Colossians 1.28, just a few verses down from our text, Paul writes, him, speaking of Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal, that's the outcome. And Paul says in verse 29, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul could rejoice in the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of Epaphras because he rejoiced in seeing people saved and he knew what it cost. He knew the investment that Epaphras had made in these people. The faithful obedience of believers in gospel ministry, gospel proclamation, prayers, all of those things together is key to the progress of the gospel. It's key. So, as we reflect this morning on Paul's gratitude for the impact of the gospel at this church, I think it should prompt us to ask ourselves a couple questions. I want you to ask yourself this morning Is my heart aligned with God's? Is my heart aligned with God's heart? Do you get excited about the things that God is doing in the world? Do you get excited about the things that God's excited about? Are your burdens God's purposes? Do you align with him? Do you have a heart that longs for and rejoices in gospel progress? Is that something you pray for? Is that something you thank God for when you hear about it? Is that something you personally invest your life in? Is your life dedicated to gospel advancement? You may not be like Epaphras. You might not be the one to go to a new city and preach the gospel to people who've never heard it and start a church. But God does have a desire to use you in the specific context you find yourself in? Have you surrendered yourself to the advancement of the gospel? Is your heart aligned with God's? If not, then I would submit to you that there needs to be an adjustment. As one of my friends, Ryan Lynch, says, you might need a checkup from the neck up. Get your head right. Get focused on the things that God is focused on. I think as we look at the work of God in these people and we look at how Paul rejoices in this, We ought to similarly rejoice in the fruitful ministry of the gospel and give ourselves to that. Second question you should ask, and this is perhaps even more essential for some of you this morning. Is there evidence in your life of the transforming power of the gospel? If the gospel is this powerful message that changes everyone who embraces it, that produces a certain kind of faith, that produces a certain kind of love, that brings about this radical change, let me ask you, have you experienced that? Would someone like Paul hear about you? and say, wow, praise God, thank God for his work of grace in their life, because it is evident. It's evident by their faith. It's evident by their love. The only explanation that they would be like this is that they got a hold of the gospel, and that the gospel got a hold of them. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? Faith, love, hope that is laid up for you in heaven, Do others recognize God's grace at work in you and give thanks for you? Because if not, then what you need this morning is to believe this gospel, to receive it. Spiritual life, a relationship with God starts at the moment where a person repents of their sin and places their complete trust fully in the death and resurrection of Christ. Until that takes place, There will never be the kind of spiritual change that God desires to see. Until that takes place, you have not yet been made alive. You've not yet been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. You've not yet been redeemed and had your sins forgiven. And you've not yet been reconciled to God. You are still at a distance from him. Even if you believe that he's there, you believe that he's true, until that change in the heart takes place, then you are in need of salvation. And that comes only through faith in the gospel. I want to admonish you this morning to lay hold of the hope that is in heaven. Lay hold of that hope, that hope of eternal life through faith. Trust in Christ and allow God, through the power of his spirit, through the transformation of the gospel to change you from the inside out. Third question I want to ask this morning. Do you believe in the power of the gospel to change others? Or maybe even to change you. Or maybe to change the world. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Do you believe that it's enough? Do you believe that it's enough? Because if you do, if you say, yes, I believe that, then it's going to be demonstrated by a complete, honest, faithful proclamation of the gospel. If you believe that that's what your neighbor or your daughter, or your coworker needs to hear, if that's the thing that's going to change their life, then that is what you will want to share with them. If that's what you believe, then you will be clear. You'll be clear about man's problem of sin. You'll be clear about God's gracious provision of Christ. And you'll be clear about the response that the gospel demands, repentance and faith. We must faithfully proclaim this message believing that the gospel is the power of God. It's the power to change a life, the power to change a family, the kind of power that can revitalize a church, the kind of power that can change the world. Let's not reach for anything else. Let's reach for this treasure, this resource, the gospel, because that is what's going to make the difference. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is ultimately a message that upholds the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Where the gospel takes root, lives are changed. We know that this is God's doing. It bears testimony to the power of the message itself. And God is pleased to use faithful laborers, people like Epaphras and Paul, people like you, people like me, to advance this life-transforming message in the world today. May we continue to experience the ongoing power of the gospel in our lives. Let's lean into that. And also, let's pray that God would use us to advance His gospel in the world today. Father in heaven, as we consider the amazing good news of the gospel, we thank you that you would extend your grace and your love and your mercy to people like us who are sinners, people like us who have broken your heart and grieved you by our disobedience, people like us who have aroused your wrath and your righteous indignation by our rebellion. We thank you, God, that you forgive us on the basis of Christ's shed blood when we come to you in faith. We thank you, God, for the change that's taken place in the lives of many who are gathered here this morning. God, that is your work. We give you all the glory for the salvation of souls. And God, we desperately want to see others experience the transforming power of the gospel. I pray for any in the room this morning in whose hearts the gospel has not yet taken root. I pray, God, that today, as they hear the gospel, that they would receive the truth of the gospel, that they would place their faith in Christ and lay hold of that hope in heaven through faith. I pray, God, that you'd continue to bear fruit in our ministry here, that the gospel would advance in Lawrence, that you'd use us as your faithful instruments, to see that happen. God, we thank you for your word, for what we've seen in it this morning. Give us a heart that desires to obey. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.